Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Great to be with you tonight. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for the folks that got locked out there, I'm sorry. We uh, locked the door. We had some people trying to get in. So thanks for staying with us. We won't lock you out of church next time. Um, but we're, uh, we're going to be looking uh, tonight at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, we're going to look at the first 13 verses of this chapter. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, we're, we're just doing like a two-week sermon series, so it's going to be really short this week and next week. Um, and it's just one chapter, so we're going to look at some of the chapter this week, some of the chapter next week. Um, but I think what we'll learn in this one p- chapter of Scripture is going to be incredibly, incredibly helpful for us. Um, and I'll explain those things as we get further on into the sermon. But First Peter 2, verses 1 through 13, uh, we believe these things were written by Peter, the apostle, who you have heard about, who is oftentimes in the narratives of the Gospels. Um, and uh, God used him mightily and greatly uh, through the calling of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit used Peter to do was to give us this little book. And so let's um, read these words together. Uh, and they do come to us with, with authority, with the Holy Spirit empowered authority, the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together as I read aloud the word of Christ. First Peter 2, beginning of verse 1. So... Church family, people in Christ, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, a few weeks ago, I took a couple days uh, away from the office to think about, pray about, begin writing down uh, sermon ideas for 2020. Uh, Just trying to map out next year. It's kind of my process. Usually I take some time in the summer to begin thinking about the next year. And as I was heading away, I was having a conversation with Brad Smith, who's one of our elders in I was just saying, you know, have any ideas, anything that we might need to talk about? And he says, you know, the election's going to be next year. I think we probably should kind of think about that. Talk about, you know, what is, how do we think about, you know, what does it mean to engage with politics as a Christian? How do we do this in a way that pleases Christ? How do we do this biblically and rightly? And I said, well, I'm actually preaching two sermons that kind of are around that theme in July. And Brad said, oh, well, July, that's a great time to do it. It's right around the time of the DNC and the RNC. Uh, That'll be a great time. I said, no, 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 not July 2020, this July coming up. And so here we are. We're here. We're way ahead of the curve. Um, But, of course, it is kind of election season beginning. And, of course, it begins earlier and earlier. The Democratic debates were, uh, you know, last week or a week and a half ago. And, Political talk, of course, is going to be ramping up over the next uh, few months. And so I think it's, it's good for us to begin talking now about what does it mean to be a Christian that engages with the culture when it comes to these political things in a way that really honors the Lord. Ultimately, really what I'm talking about is how, how, how are we being citizens that honor Christ? Um, you know, a lot of Christians have the tendency to over-spiritualize political things. Uh, Someone sent me an article last week or two weeks ago about Paula White using Psalm 2 to speak of President Trump as the Lord's anointed. Let me just tell you, Psalm 2 is about many things. But it's not about Donald Trump or any American president. The U.S. president is not the Lord's anointed. You know, David French had an interesting article um, a, couple of years ago, uh, a couple weeks ago about um, evangelicals making decisions based on fear. And, you know, I think that to some degree that's true. And, and that should not be how Christians are ever known. Christians should be, like our Lord, courageous and bold. Not, fear, not people dictated or noted because of our fears. Um, I remember one time I was, uh, when I was pastor of First Baptist Covington, First Baptist Covington, a very traditional church, and they always had a big kind of uh, American celebration, and, and we, at the same time, at First Baptist uh, Covington, were really kind of emphasizing global missions, and this was, this really hadn't been done in that church. It, it was a church that really didn't do a lot of global missions. We were emphasizing the great need of the Great Commission, trying to talk about the great need to, to send missionaries and to send the gospel to other nations that that we are brothers and sisters with, with other nations, other um, people all over the world. At the same time, I was kind of getting rid of the big kind of American celebrations at the church. And that was kind of a, not a great combo, you know, for job security for me at that time at that church. And, and one of the deacons, I remember one, we had a deacon meeting one time, and a deacon meeting said to me, Son, you have to remember that we wouldn't have missionaries if we didn't have the United States. Now, I understand what he was trying to say. He was trying to say that, you know, we have a strong military, we protect missionaries around the world, but of course missionaries far precede the United States. The United States has been around only, you know, less than 250 years. Missionaries have been around from the time, of course, that the Great Commission uh, was given. 
And, and I think that what this guy was implying and what a lot of Christians believe, and this is, I guess, the warning, is that somehow the strength of Christianity is tied to the strength of America. And this is what I'm talking about. This is over-spiritualizing your citizenship as citizens of the United States or over-spiritualizing the importance of politics. And let me just warn you, when we do this, when we fall into this trap of over-spiritualizing our politics or over-spiritualizing our understanding of nationality, we fall into the narrative that secular people are writing about us already. Now, just, just in case you don't know this, secular people see Christianity. They have to create a category. Why would all these people believe in this God? What is this? So the category that most secular people frame for Christian people is that Christian people are just people that are under the delusion of political influences. It's a political group, to quote Marx, the... Um, um, the proletariat, or the bourgeoisie rather, has used religion to drug the proletariat, right? So the powerful people, says Marx, is using religions as a means of fear and a means of reward in order to control the simple-minded and common people like us in order to keep or to gain something political. And so that's the narrative that's being told about Christians anyway from a secular perspective. And when you over-spiritualize your politics, when you over-spiritualize your voting, when you over-spiritualize the role that the United States has to play in the cause of Christ. And again, I'm not trying to undermine the, the greatness of our country and the good things that have happened through our country. I'm very grateful to be an American. But when you over-spiritualize these things, you, you fall into a secular narrative. You end up playing to the narrative that secular people are already writing about us. Now, the other thing, though, that Christians can do, right, so there's two sides to this is to avoid any talk of political things or to avoid anything that's going on in the society or the government around them, right? So we should be the best citizens. We should be the most informed and most engaged citizens. But oftentimes Christians say, well, my vote doesn't really count anyway. I'm just going to avoid politics. It's such a dirty world. We're going to spend a lot more time on this next week, how in God's providence, he's actually calling you, especially as citizens of this country, to be engaged in political process. So come back next week for more on that. But we're calling this little series Christian Nation. Now, I grew up hearing that America was a Christian nation. But what does this mean? Um, and I, we're still kind of in the introduction part of the sermon, so I don't want to go too far on this because I could talk... These, these are hard categories to understand. But just very simply, just, just so that we can all be on the same page here, America has always been a nation that valued Christian principles and that valued some Christian morals. It's always been a nation with many Christians, but it is not a Christian nation, right? It was not founded to be a theocracy. It was not founded to be a church. It was not founded um, even by many Christians. Um, and let me explain this. Um, there's a couple of categories that I think will be really, really helpful for us. Um, Christianity was born into a world, a Roman world, that had a very different ethic, a very different category of morals than we have, okay? There was, uh, Romans didn't value women. Romans, uh, certainly didn't value all people. They believed in sla uh, slavery. They, they had a very different sexual ethic than, than we would have as Christians. 
Christianity, they certainly, Roman citizens certainly didn't believe that all men were created equal, right? So Christianity was born into this world with a very, very different ethic, a very different moral code than we have. Now, as Christianity began to grow, as people, as Christians were spreading out in this Roman Empire, it began to change and to shape the morality. Uh, it began to shape and change what we know as Western civilization, and the core morality, the, the core ethic, or how we understand the world today, a Western civilized world today, has been framed ultimately by this Christian notion. But just to clarify some terms here, Christianity, when I use the word Christianity, I am talking about the people, or the, the life and beliefs of those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord and people who know and believe in the gospel, right? You are Christians if you hold fast to Christ as your savior and believe that he has come to save you from your own sin and called you into life with him forever and forever. That's Christianity. But what Christianity has built is a system that I refer to as Western Christianity, right? So I'm using those as two different terms, Christianity and Western Christianity. And Western Christianity is the religious system that's been built in large part by Christians and by Christianity. Uh, and then finally, another just kind of word that I like to think through is Western civilization. And Western civilization is kind of the, the ethos and the norms and the superstructure that we were, most of us at least, were born into that kind of dictates our morals, our ethics, how we frame the world, how we view other people. And it was largely impacted by Western Christianity. So we have Christianity, which is Christianity, right? Gospel faith. You have Western Christianity, which is this kind of religious system that is built on many of the things we believe as Christians. And you have Western civilization, which, which wouldn't, we wouldn't have without Western Christianity, right? I was having a conversation uh, this weekend with somebody that said, you can still be a good person and not be a Christian, right? And that's true according to, now of course as Christians, we believe that no one is good. We were all in need of a savior. But in terms of like the ethic, in terms of the Western Christian ethic or whatever, that's true. But something has to define what is good, right? The, the thing that, that, that secular people so often um, miss is that they, they don't have a foundation for what they're defining as good or bad. They, they need Western Christianity to give them definition for morality. Okay, well, with all that in mind, when we say that America was a Christian nation... What we're saying is that some of the founding fathers were Christians, but most really weren't, okay? George Washington, again, great guy, courageous man, great general. He prayed, right? I, my dad has a picture of George Washington praying in his office. But what we understand as the gospel, George Washington did not believe. We know Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, definitely not Christians. They believed in God. They believed in natural law, but they would not be what we call gospel-believing Christians. Even John Adams, who we often tout as a Christian, as a Christian leader, he rejected the Trinity, okay? So again, he, he had some Christian beliefs, but we would not allow someone to be a member of our church that didn't believe in the Trinity. It would, that would certainly not be orthodox Christianity. So again, but what all of these guys did have in common 
And I'm not trying to knock any of these people. I'm just trying to help us understand what is going on in the world. What all of these guys had in common, they were a part of a system that I call Western Christianity, right? Every signer of the Declaration of Independence, Christian or not, was a member of a church. Every signer of the Declaration of Independence, deist, theist, whatever, they all believed in God. They all believed in what, you know, they talked about a lot back in the 18th century, natural law, right? A design, an order in the universe that was framed by God. They were all a part of this system that's called Western Christianity. And this system of Western Christianity built Western civilization. So when I hear people saying Christianity is changing in America today, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think it's hard to know what's actually happening with Christianity. But what I think the concern is really flowing out of is that Western Christianity is giving way to Western secularism. The mega system of Western Christianity where every one of the founders was a member of a church, where every one of the founders would have believed in God, where every one of the founders would have had a certain design and ethic that they adhered to, is now shifting toward a secular superstructure, toward a secular understanding of the world. And so I, I don't know if we're losing Christianity in America, but we are certainly losing Western Christianity as a framework, as a superstructure to who we are. But I say all of this to say, this hopefully will give you some categories as you think about these things and have these conversations. And again, I, was, uh, I told Blake I was practicing uh, this part of the sermon on some secular people at the pool and I think they just left them confused. But anyway... As, uh, you know, as we, um, but as we kind of have these conversations, I'm, I'm trying to give us some terms that we can talk about uh, who we are and, and what we are in this context. So, but all this to say, America is a nation that has a lot of Christian morals, right? Because it was built by this Western Christianity system. It's a nation that holds to a lot of Christian principles. It's a nation that has and that has always had a lot of Christians living in it. But America is not a Christian nation. But there is a Christian nation. There actually is an established Christian nation. And, and this is why this, this text, I think, is so helpful for us. And the more you understand this Christian nation, this, this new Christian nation that really exists, that you, if you're in Christ, are a part of, a people of God, a people that God is calling together to an eternal kingdom that is his own possession, the more you understand who you are as a citizen of this nation, of this country, of this people, the better you will be as a citizen of America or Canada or any country that you might find yourself in. So we're going to be digging into 1 Peter 2 to think about these things over the next couple of weeks. Now, we're going to jump into chapter 2 today. Chapter 1 is all about, it's helpful, I wish I had time to go through it, it's all about the new birth, right? So there's this, this belief that we have in Christianity. What does it mean to become a Christian? What is becoming a Christian like? Is it like going to church on Sundays? No. Is it like getting a new job? No. Is it like having, is it like getting married? You know, getting married really changes you, right? But the Bible doesn't talk about getting married as like becoming Christian. Is it like having children? No, it's, Blake just had a child on Monday. Blake has changed. But 
according to 1 Peter 1, according to 1 Peter 1, becoming a Christian is more dramatic than Blake having a baby on, or his wife having a baby and Blake being the father on Monday. 1 Peter 1, and we hear this language all throughout the Bible, becoming a Christian is like a new birth. It, it, it totally changes your identity. It's like becoming an entirely new person. A new person with a new identity and a person that is now, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're hanging your identity in Christ, that now actually has a new citizenship, a new home. It calls you up out. Christianity calls us up out of an earthly kingdom into an eternal and heavenly kingdom. And again, being a member of this country, of this kingdom, will dramatically affect how we are members of this country, of this kingdom. And I would even go so far as to say that being a faithful citizen, being a good citizen in the kingdom of heaven will actually make you a great citizen in the United States. And so we have a lot to talk about. I spent a long time on an introduction, but let's get, I got three points tonight and they're all kind of long, so just bear with me, I'll try to talk fast. But first point is the new king, second point is the new country, the third point is the new life. The new king, the new country, the new life. When Jesus came, if you ask a lot of Christians, what did Jesus do when he came? Some, Christ, some people will say, well, Jesus came to be a good uh, guide, a good moral guide for us. Uh, and, and to some degree, that's true, he did do that. Some people will say, Jesus came to set an example, Jesus came to teach us a new way of life. Some people will say, Jesus came to save sinners. And, and all of these things, to some degree or another, is true. But really what Jesus came to do, if you could just encompass all of these ideas in one, he came to establish a new kingdom, a new people. Uh, he came to bring salvation into a new life, into a new way of life. Salvation isn't just about being forgiven of your sins here or behaving in a moral way here. It's, it's about being invited into a new kingdom life a new kingdom where Jesus himself is our king. And again, this kind of language we see all throughout the New Testament. What the New Testament is doing over and over and over again, this is why both Testaments of your Bible, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Because what the New Testament is doing over and over and over again is it's grabbing language from the Old Testament and saying, this is what this means, okay? So, for example... The kingdom of Israel is a foreshadowing of this true new kingdom, this new kingdom of Christ that is eternal. The land that God gave to Israel is a foreshadowing of the entire cosmos, the entire world that God is going to give to those who are in Christ. The law that guarded the hearts and minds of the people of Israel is a foreshadowing of the very spirit of God that would come and indwell in the hearts and minds of the people who are in Christ. Even just particular uh, characters that we see in the Old Covenant. David, the great king of Israel, he is a shadow of Jesus, the true and eternal king. So you see this, this kingdom language that begins in the Old Testament, and it picks up, it goes all the way through the New Testament. In fact, just read the Gospels. Just read Jesus. 
Jesus is always talking about his kingdom, this kingdom that he has come to establish. Jesus is a king that has come to establish a people. And here in chapter 2, he's referenced as, and I love this, the stone. The stone. The stone of the temple that's become the cornerstone, this, this king stone that's come to create a, a, a mass of stones that all come together to build this new superstructure. And when the king comes, now people, if you just talk about Jesus as a king, most people are pretty positive to that, right? A king? We all want a king? We want a good king? Okay. I can get on board with that. But when a king actually comes, think about this. When a king actually invades, that means two different things. If you're with that king, that's good. But if you're against that king, it's not good. You're terrified. You know, one of the things we like to read at our house is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you all have read that book, I know many of you have. It's all about an invading king, right? The white witch is ruling over Narnia. She has control over Narnia. And, and, and some people like that. Some people are happy that the white witch is in control. They've joined the white witch's side. Some people are longing for the invasion of the true king. There's this old rhyme in Narnia that you read in the book that says, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again, to use the English rhyme there. But again, not everyone in Narnia is so excited about Aslan coming, right? The, the witch, the people that are on her side, they are terrified that this king might return. And this is how Peter is describing Jesus here. The king that is coming, he will either be precious to you or he'll be a stumbling block. Look at verse six. He says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders reject has become a cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And I just want to pause and ask the question here, when you think about Jesus invading, you think about Jesus coming to earth, you think about Jesus invading your life and ruling in your life. You know, we say the kingdom of heaven has come. What are we saying? We're saying that the kingdom of heaven is present now in the lives of people who believe, just as it will be present one day in all of the cosmos. So when you think about Jesus coming to invade your life, how does that hit you? Do you long for Jesus to come invade your life and undo everything that's being done in your heart and align your heart and your soul with him? Or does Jesus coming and invading your life terrify you? Is it a stumbling block for you? Is Jesus really your king? Is Jesus really your Lord? Do you long for him to invade? Or have you aligned yourself with another king? Have you aligned yourself with another ruler who hates to even hear the name of Jesus. King is not a neutral word, right? When a king invades, you're not just neutral toward that. You're either with that king or you're an enemy of that king. 
Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is he your king? Or have you rejected him? You know, whenever I <laughs> talk to, you know, young men, I, I love hanging out with young guys, trying to help them, the guys in their 20s help make them decisions in their life. I, it was a huge time in my life, between 20 and 30, you're figuring out what's your job, what's your, what you're going to do, how you gonna, who you're going to marry. Whenever I hang out with young guys in their 20s, they've been walking with the Lord, and all of a sudden they kind of stop, you know, they kind of fall away from the Lord. One of the first questions I ask them is, you know, who are you having sex with these days, right? Because so often it's not because, they're not running away from the Lord because they read a new book or they found some new philosophy. It's because Jesus is invading an area of their life that they don't want him to invade. He's trying to take control of an area of their life they don't want him to have control over. A lot of times with people of my age, in the middle of their life, their careers become an idol that they don't want Jesus to really invade or maybe their wealth or maybe something else and, and Jesus starts to invade and they say, hold on, has Jesus become a stumbling block for you? Is he offending you? Or, are you, or do you await or do you long await his invasion? So the new king, the second thing that we see in this passage is the new country. I said before that the new birth produces a new citizenship a new citizenship. In Christ, your primary citizenship is no longer as an American or a Canadian or an Indonesian or an Indian. No, your primary citizenship is a Christian. And what does that mean? Let's look at verse 9. There's a couple of descriptors here. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Four phrases here, they each carry a lot of weight. First, a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Race. Now here's the wonder of Christianity. You know, people, especially minority groups, are very loyal to their race. There's a lot of racial favoritism among all people. Um, and it exists among people. There's, there's a lot of loyalty to race. What Christianity does is it calls you up out of those kinds of loyalties, those lesser loyalties. And it says, now be unified, be joined with one another. This is your true loyalty. Loyalty that, that, that transcends race. Loyalty that transcends your class or your job. You're a chosen race. You're a new race. Do you really see your brothers and sisters in Christ as family? It's people that you're most loyal to. He also calls us to be a royal priesthood. You know what a priest is? A priest is someone who advocates for another. A priest is a go-between. They advocate for another. They, they, they make an appeal to someone, to God who's in authority uh, on behalf of someone else. This is who you are in Christ. Who are you advocating for? Right, is there anybody in your life that you're advocating for? That you're saying, you know what, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advocate for this person. I'm going to give to this person without expecting anything in return. I want to be an advocate for them. I want to intercede for them. I want to plead with God for them. If you're in Christ, you're called to be a priest. Who are you priesting for? Who are you advocating for? This is something I so admire about Paige. She's always thinking of ways to advocate for people, to do things for people, 
to, 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 to be kind to people without expecting anything in return. And sometimes, I'll be honest, as a selfish guy, I kind of get annoyed. I'm like, you know, do we have to do this for them? But she's priesting for them. She's going in between for them. She's advocating for them. Another thing that we see, a descriptor that should be true of us, is that we're a holy nation. We are distinct. Is there any distinction in your life? You know, you've heard me talk about one of our values as a church is to be a kingdom ambassador. What is a kingdom ambassador? It's to be a citizen of one country, to be a citizen of one place, and all your wealth, all your identity, all your protection, all your security is secure in that home country, but you're now living in another country. And you're living in another country for the good of that country and for the good of your own country. And this is exactly who you are in Christ. We're, we are living in the United States. This country is not our home. Our possessions, our joy, our security is all secure with Christ in his eternal kingdom. And now we can live here. And we can live in neighborhoods. And we can work in different jobs. And we can do all of these things not needing to get anything in return, but really just willing to give and advocate for and to be an ambassador, a distinct ambassador for the good of the people that God has called us to serve. If you are in Christ, you're a member of this new nation, this holy nation. And the last phrase here is you're a possession of God. You're his children, a people of God's own possession, his joy you know, I talk to a lot of American Christians today that feel like they've lost something, right? We've lost this, or we've lost a culture war. Secular people or young people or the left or the right, they've taken it away. A lot of American Christians feel like they've, they've lost something. We feel like something's been stolen. And you talk to a lot of American Christians that are kind of angry at the world. And I just want to say, look, Nothing, if you're in Christ, nothing has been taken away from you because nothing can be taken away from you. Your identity, your inheritance is secure with Jesus in a never-ending kingdom. And so let's never be people that are angry with the very people that we're called to priest, with the very people that we're called to serve, with the very people that we're called to give our lives to. As we see in 1 Peter 1, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. So even though Western civilization is giving way to Western secularism, and Western Christianity is not as influential as it used to be, it hasn't changed our status that hasn't changed our true citizenship. You know, to say it this way, everything back home is fine. Everything in your home country is doing great. You have a king who is reigning, who is protecting your inheritance, who is protecting your joy, who is protecting your security. Everything is great with him. And so now you can truly live as ambassadors, as priests in this place. The United States is not our home. It's just a country that we've been called to serve. It's a country that we've been appointed to by our King who is Jesus. So let's serve it well, let's love it, not as people trying to get so much from it, but as people who are truly trying to be ambassadors here. So we've talked about the new King and the new country, and finally, I just wanna talk about the new life. I got a couple points here. 
the new life. What does this new life look like? What is the picture of the new life? How do we get the new life? And what is the result of the new life? What, is it, what does this new life look like, first of all? Well, if we've been called to be citizens of an entirely new country, we've got to begin living like that, right? We've, we've got to be, be, begin living out the ethic of our homeland. You know, the, the, most of the time when I talk to people about ethics, the number one answer you get, why do people do what they do? Why do people, why, why do people follow the way they follow? Why do people believe that this is good or this is bad? Here's the number one answer that people give, this is how I was raised, right? It's how I was brought up. I was brought up to believe this. What are they saying? The ethic of my homeland is this. The ethic of my homeland is this. But here's the deal. If you have a new homeland, you have a new ethic. And, and the ethic that we have now looks more like this. Look at verse 1. Put away all malice, <laughs> all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. What if that would just be true? What if just verse 1 was true of Christ's covenant? No malice between us, no envy, no deceit, no hypocrisy, no envy, no slander. <laughs> what if nobody here had anger issues? What if nobody was hypocritical? What if we always spoke well of each other? And this is, this is how we were raised, right? This is how we were brought up. This is, this is who we are brought up to be in Christ. But then the next thing is, if that's what the picture of the new kingdom looks like or the picture of the new life looks like, how do we get there? Well, verse 2 shows us how to get there. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. You know, it was three years ago, this week actually, that Christ's covenant really became real, real. I was announcing to Valleydale that I was leaving our church in Birmingham. I started telling people I'm leaving, I'm going to go do this thing. And you know, you know when you say something out loud, and you're like, I can't, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you, you actually sit down and you tell the people and you're like, okay, well, now I got to do it, right? I resigned. I don't have a job, you know, at the end of two months or whatever. And so it was really becoming real. And at that same time, you know, Rainer was just a baby. Rainer was born April of 16. We kind of made the decision to move here June of 16. So April has, uh, Rainer rather has always been analogous to like Christ's covenant for me. And y'all know Rainer, he, when he first moved over here, he was just a little baby, couldn't do anything. He just ate and, you know, just ate and, you know, did what you do after you eat. That's all he did. That's all he could do. Those were his only skills. Um, but now, if you look at Rainer, he's running around. He's talking. He, he's asking really good questions. Um, he's trying to do everything that John Kellis does and that Emeriana does. And he's just becoming a great little three-year-old boy. And you, you kind of look at that as a parent. You know, Blake's in the middle of this right now. Blake just had a little baby on Monday. I just said that. But you think, how does, how does the baby get from this, the baby that can only eat and do nothing else, can't even lift his head, to this like human that runs around and it's smart and that does, like, how does that even happen? And you know how it happens? The baby eats milk. The baby eats milk. The baby keeps eating milk every day, a lot of times a day. And then they move to solid food. 
and they eat me more food, and they eat more food, and they begin to grow, and they begin to mature, and they grow up. They, be- they mature. They become a human. They become an adult. They become full-fledged. And this is the analogy that uh, Peter is giving us. He's saying, look, this is what you're supposed to do. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for the word of God. And if you eat it, if you eat it, and if you drink it, and if you keep drinking every day, you got to three times a day, you got to keep eating, you got to keep going after, you got to feast on this. And if you do, you'll grow up, you'll mature, you'll become whole. And so this is why, you know, this, you know why we spend so much time here putting like the rhythms book together and putting all these field guides together for you guys and pushing you guys into groups and, you know, trying to get you to serve and trying to get you to go on mission trips and doing all this because we want, we don't want you to be little babies for the rest of your life. We as a community and we want us as individuals to grow up, to be mature, to behave like our new citizenship is calling us to behave, to live out the new kingdom life. So we've looked at the picture of the new life, the process of the new life. And then lastly, here's the result of the new life. Look at verse 11 and 12. So as we grow up, as we mature in this way, verse 11 Beloved, I urge you as strangers and sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. If you're mature, you'll be able to do this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's look at that again. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's the deal, guys. If you're really living out the kingdom ethic in this Western secular age, you're going to be strange, right? Christians believe strange things to this world. We do strange things. We, we behave in strange ways. We, we treat one another with a concern for one another without asking, without trying to get on top all the time. Our goal is not to get to the top. Our goal is to get to the bottom and to love others. We're unified with people. We're kind to people. We're honorable to people because we believe in a Lord. We, we, we believe that Jesus is the Lord. We believe strange things. And you know, the Gentile, the secular world, will look at us as strange, and, and when it says speak evil, it may just mean they'll say, those people are strange. What do they believe? Do they really, do they really believe that? You know, did, did you, do you, you know, people say, did, did, you, did you really go to an Ivy League school and believe that about Jesus? Do you really believe this? They'll seek strange, but when they see your good deeds, when they see how you live, when they see your consistency and maturity and poise, when you're truly priesting, when you're truly an ambassador, when you're truly living out the kingdom of heaven, what does it say? It says, even though they speak evil against you, they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. They'll see something in us that, that will turn their hearts toward God. Listen, guys, if you're truly in Christ, you are a part of a nation a Christian nation that is eternal and good where God himself has given you everything, where God himself calls you his fa- your father and 
where, where you are his son, where you are his daughter, where you have an inheritance that is imperishable and kept, where everything is secure and right. And if you are a part of that nation and your identity is there and you're secure there, then you can live in this broken and needy and confused world without anger, without offense, but with a poise and a peace and a love and a concern that will do so much. So that's the kind of citizens that I want us to be. Not, not over-spiritualizing politics. God is sovereign. God is in control. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, if, if your candidate wins, you may be happy. If your candidate loses, you may be a little sad. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is not our identity. We've, we've, we are a part of a, a much, the United States is going to be, what is it, 243 years old this, well, it just turned 243 years old. That's so little. <laughs> That's so small. That's so nothing. The GDP of the United States is what, $21 trillion? Do you realize that we have a God who has the entire cosmos? $21 trillion is pennies. This is all so small compared to the true citizenship that you are called to. And if that's true of you, then you can actually live here as a servant, as a priest, with confidence, so may that be true of us. May we be the kind of citizens that God wants us to be because we ultimately see ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of your word. I pray, Father, that Jesus now, our true king, would invade, invade, Lord, invade our hearts, invade our lives, conquer every corner of our heart in the way, Father, that one day Christ will conquer over the whole cosmos. May, may the kingdom reign of Jesus be known in my life today like it will one day be known fully in his eternal kingdom. And may that be true of Christ's covenant, all of us, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we feast on your word, as we stir one another along, that you would do this good work. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.